The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today we're going to be speaking about various aspects of privacy, and we're inviting back one of the very first guests that we've ever had on our show, who comes back every year because he is wonderful. We're going to be speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, who's a journalist who uses his training as an attorney to report on the individual's right to privacy. And since 1974, he has published Privacy Journal, which, by the way, I've been getting it since 1996, so I get it every month anyway. It's a monthly newsletter that's on privacy in the computer age, and it's based, he's based in Providence, Rhode Island, which I got to go to Providence, Rhode Island when he had a little program out there, which was beautiful. He is a frequent speaker, writer, and congressional witness on all sorts of privacy issues, and he has compiled a clearinghouse of information on the subject of privacy, including such issues as computer data banks, credit and medical records, the internet, electronic surveillance, all sorts of issues of privacy, whether it be physical privacy or psychological privacy. He also, uh, recently in the past, oh, since 2014, he has become an actor. He's appeared in more than 11 community theater productions in southern New England and three independent films in Rhode Island where he lives when it's beautiful. So we're just thrilled to have him join us again. Thank you, Bob, for joining us again this morning. Okay, it's really great to be with you. Yeah. I guess I was one of your very first, wasn't I? You sure were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking I really need to get your autograph now that you're an actor before, you know, before you go to uh, the Academy Awards and you won't remember who I am. <laughs> That's right. You never know. You never know. <laughs> right. So I know that you just completed updating your reference book on the state privacy laws. So talk to, talk to us about some of the new trends, would you? Yeah, I think the major trend is that every state now has a law that uh, requires notification to people in case there's a loss of data through hacking or some other breach. They're called breach notification laws, and uh, it took a long while. California naturally was the very first that required this, and because California did it, that meant that a lot of companies had to abide by it because they do business in California. And there's been a great delay in Congress passing a federal law. So now we have all 50 states have passed those laws. And 
uh, the businesses uh, don't complain very much about the lack of uniformity, and believe me, there is a lack of uniformity. There are there are uh, variations in just about every state law, but essentially, uh, any company, uh, and in most cases, government agencies that keep uh, information on people, if they su- suffer a security breach, they uh, have to notify uh, the individuals involved, and quite often have to involve uh, have to notify a state agency like the attorney general. Right, right. So what do you think, do you think that it's necessary to have a federal law? I know there's a big controversy because some states um, are much more stringent than others, and some people are worried that maybe the federal law would be really watered down and it would preempt state law. So what are your thoughts? Uh, I I think that we don't need one because of those two reasons you you gave. We don't want the federal government to preempt uh, uh, some of these much stronger uh, progressive laws. Also, the states are kind of a laboratory uh, for new uh, laws. Uh, we're learning now that maybe uh, notifying a, a breach uh, the day after it happens may not be the best thing in the world. The timing is very crucial here, but you don't want to alert, uh, alarm people if, if the breach turns out to be uh, about um, innocent um, information or it involved only a few people. Uh, you want to give time for law enforcement and the company to find out exactly what happened and make an informed notification to people. Um, I'm afraid that a, a federal law would have one standard for when you're supposed to notify people. So uh, I think we're doing fine with the, <laughs> the state laws. Yeah. And you know, the states can pass things so much more quickly than federal law. You know? They really can. <laughs> and uh, in spite of what a lot of people accuse states of doing, I think they're less susceptible to pernicious lobbying. They really are. They, they get things done quicker. They listen to people at hearings uh, much uh, closer to the uh, uh, grassroots than, than the federal Congress is. And, uh, uh, yeah, they, they, they do get things passed quicker. And, and, you know, California has really led the way in privacy, and, and I always worry that if the feds take over, they've, they've already watered down some of the laws that we had passed in California, you know. So, you know, I worry about that with our security breach law, you know, they was uh, – I don't mean our security breach law. I'm talking about when um, people would be victims of identity theft, and there right. was a, a you know a state law that if someone if if a company uh, was you know involved in the uh, identity theft that the that the identity thief the identity victim excuse me um, had private rights of action that were much more uh, available to them than the federal law that kind of over you know overrode them so that's that's the thing that I concern gets concerned about because California has really uh, led the way and then there's so many times that when there's so many interests there like you're talking about the lobbyists that it really does interfere with helping consumers yeah California's law on identity theft was one of the first and it had a nationwide impact and then that's true of its medical confidentiality law and uh, several other areas um couple of other trends. One is what's nicknamed the ban the box. It's an attempt to uh, have employers not ask about arrest records until they uh, move further in the uh, application process and actually interview somebody and make them a likely prospect. Um, in other words, to ban the box on an employment application that says, have you ever been convicted or arrested? Uh, that quite often stops the uh, 
application process right there without any explanation. So California has joined that trend and uh, and passed one of those those laws. And uh, there's also uh, more laws now about uh, uh, punishing uh, fishing, which uh, California has such a law, but so do a lot of other states. Fishing is essentially sending email to somebody that looks like a legitimate request from a company you do business with, and they ask for information uh, like social security number and account numbers and uh, balance and uh, home address and a whole lot of other things. And you can see once they get that information, these uh, operators can uh, can engineer um, identity theft after that. So right. th- those laws are very important. Yeah. How about social media? What's uh, social media of employees? How about that? That's another one. Yeah. California uh, does uh, prohibit uh, an employer from uh, demanding a password or demanding access to a social media site by uh, employees or by uh, by applicants. It's one of, uh, I think we count uh, about 25 states that uh, have those laws. There are maybe another dozen states that apply those to uh, higher education. Um, and uh, let me hold on, hold on a second and I will check. I think California is in that category. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed, that educational institutions can't have access to social media without the consent of the individual, nor can they demand uh, passwords, uh, nor can they prohibit uh, students from having uh, social media sites. Important new laws that uh, California was in the early part of that trend. Now it's really catching on. About 15 states that uh, have those laws with regard to students and with regard to employees, it's up in the high 20s, about 25 states. Right. And I think some people get really worried about that because we see all of these mass shootings in high school and campuses, uh, on college campuses. So people say, well, gee, if they could get the social media, maybe they could prevent it. But it seems to me there needs to be at least probable or reasonable cause to be able to get it and get it, let law enforcement get it, Right. Yeah, and in many ways, fellow students are are the watchdogs here. Whenever they see suspicious activity on a media site, they they should report it. And uh, there's no constitutional problem there at all doing that. And that's one way to get at people who are putting up violent or hateful things uh, on the internet. But um, it, it and, and in addition, whenever any suspicion comes to a school authority or to an employer, they can get access then. It's just this uh, overall demand that was made of all employees or all students that they had to turn over their passwords, and that that was unwise. Uh, that you know the majority of people using social media uh, do it responsibly, and and they they want the confidentiality, and and they deserve it. It's it's healthy, I think, for people to have a way to uh, be uninhibited and to talk about what they want. And we can count on those other people who receive those messages to report to the authorities um, anything that's suspicious. Absolutely, because I think we were seeing in, I saw many times in the newspaper, people were being fired for, you know, for their social media, which really had nothing to do with the company itself. So Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that, so was, a, that was a need, are, yeah. Uh, People casually saying they don't drive the automobile that is manufactured by their employer. Well, <laughs> right. uh, uh, they, uh, they, yeah, they were fired for that. Crazy. So, you know, we, we had that big Equifax breach that we're seeing all the repercussions of that now. What, what are your thoughts on that, and what has been the impact? Well, as a journalist, I'm disappointed in the, in the uh, public press media all the time. I don't think they've reported this enough. I don't think they understand how... 
um, uh, the credit business works or how Equifax works and what are the uh, ramifications of having a negative credit report. Um, they tend to think that um, uh, credit bureaus just will, a bad credit report will just affect your credit, and that's not true. It affects your employment opportunity, your insurance opportunities, your housing opportunities, and quite often other things. So it's very crucial that that record uh, be accurate. Um, and when it's breached, uh, that means that a lot of that information is in the hands of uh, nefarious parties. And that's where we stand right now. There's a huge um, uh, class action lawsuit that's been launched against Aquifax. It's being managed in Atlanta by a very experienced judge who's done these things before. He, in fact, handled the Home Depot breach and was highly praised for uh, his uh, activity there. And he, too, works rather quickly. So that's a good sign that at least people, the potential victims here, can be assured that uh, there are high-powered lawyers looking after their interests in this uh, class action lawsuit. I think we'll have something on that probably by the fall. We'll know a little bit more about the direction that's going in. The, the only cautionary thing for those of us who are interested in consumer rights is that the judge seems a little bit more interested in the losses that banks suffered than those that individuals suffered. Yeah, and you know, people forget what is really uh, that what was really stolen, and and that breach, there was everything: your your marital status, your birthday, your social security number, your former spouses, your addresses. So uh, everything that they had was really made available to whoever you know uh, actually did the breach. So it's it's more than just your credit worthiness, right? It's it's oh, everything yeah, about it's... you that I think is really a lot worse than your credit card getting stolen because if your credit card information is stolen you you, you cancel the card and you get a new card and you're yeah, not it's responsible convenient, but it yeah. can be done right. it can be done it's right. a little harder to change your birth date yeah. <laughs> or, uh you can get a new social security number but that's extremely difficult so that you're absolutely right to highlight that that it's the information outside of the credit ledger information that's most crucial and that was part of the theft yes especially social security numbers yeah. So I remember many years ago when I testified on, you know, trying to get the credit freeze in California. And so now most states have a credit freeze, right? Isn't that they true? They do indeed. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about the credit freeze? And do you think that you should recommend that people get it? Or what, oh, what are your thoughts? Tough question. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, what do you think? <laughs> About well, credit freezes. You know, I, I had recommended it many, many years ago because when I was a victim myself in 1996, I couldn't stop um, creditors from issuing credit, even though I finally I had a fraud alert on. So yeah. for someone who has something relentless like that, they've been a, a victim of identity theft and they just cannot stop creditors from issuing credit, putting a freeze on their credit report does um, makes it so that no one can get the credit report without you thawing it or giving a password to allow it to be revealed. Mm-hmm. So, but I think if you're not a victim of identity theft, I think it's it's really not going to be that necessary. But yeah. unless you're really really scared and you don't want to get credit, because it does make it difficult for you to get credit yourself. Like if you want to buy lower a car. anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. It slows things down. I guess people should be reassured that. Uh, this is not irrevocable. If they go for a credit freeze, they can revoke it later. It, I, it, it's not all, uh, not that 
convenient or easy, but it can be done, so they should remember that. Most states uh, don't charge for credit freeze uh, if you especially are uh, the victim of identity theft or if you're a senior citizen or in the military, uh, but in other states uh, don't charge for it at all. So once again, we're looking at a bunch of state laws, not federal law on credit freezes. So it's something that you have to decide, uh, as you say, in each individual circumstance, uh, after you are the victim of, of identity theft. I, I agree with you that if you're not the victim of identity theft, I think there's probably no reason to get a credit freeze, and unless by nature you just hate credit bureaus, which I can well understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you do get a notification of a breach, it's a wise idea to put a fraud alert on. And I think nowadays the companies are not as... I think, careless that they were many years ago. I think if there is a fraud alert that says don't issue credit without calling me first at this number and you give your cell phone number, that I think that really helps. So if you do get a breach notification letter, it's a good idea to put a fraud alert on that'll stay on for 90 days. And if you want it on for seven years, you have to write and ask for it. So, you know, I think that's a little bit less intrusive because if you are applying for credit, just make sure you give your cell phone number so that they can call you if you're trying to get a Macy's card. (laughs) They'll call you Uh, at home and you're uh, not home. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the fraud alert that you mentioned is a matter of federal law. That's in the Fair Credit Reporting Act that you can can do that. Right. So what about the laws, Social Security? You know, are we protected with the social, our Social Security number? I well, noticed that they're changing finally, finally, that the Medicare number is changing to an alternate number, which it's about time. It, yeah, at least on the card. Uh, people by now should have been issued, now that I think about it, I don't think I've gotten mine, but yeah. um, pe- people should have been issued a new uh, Medicare card without the Social Security number, and that was quite a battle for a number of years to make that happen. Right. Uh, there, Some states have laws about Social Security numbers, but they're not very helpful. They they kind of say that the states may not uh, release uh, inform, uh, Social Security numbers to others or put it on the outside of envelopes, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, there are uh, a growing number of states that prohibit it from being used as a college or university ID number, and I think that's a very good idea. So we're making a little headway there. I, I think that people now are alert that uh, the dangers of putting out their Social Security numbers, less so, but still uh, moving along, is that uh, institutions are learning the dangers of Social Security numbers, um, and uh, like banks and, and, and the like, and, and some of them are not using it as a ID number, which is very, very dangerous. Now, instead, they quite often ask for the last four, and your listeners might be interested in, in that. I don't. I think that's only partial privacy. I, I, I don't think that's uh, complete privacy. So I think people ought to uh, insist that there be no social security number given over in, in some new transaction. When you're opening a new account, a credit card account or the like, uh, I wouldn't give up your social security number. And I wouldn't give it up when you apply for work until the, the very end of the process when you're just about to be hired and you're doing the... Uh, the paperwork for the payroll department, but I, I wouldn't put it on an application in the first instance. That opens up uh, searches into various databases, some of which are accurate and some of which aren't, uh, that uh, report on arrests and a report on prior employment and insurance defaults and that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, I would d- advise people to 
um, uh, not give it up at that point. As you know, the Social Security number really is the root of identity theft. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the more you can protect that number and not let it out, I think the uh, the less are the instances of identity theft that you you're going to face. That's certainly been my experience. And so, without the Social Security number, identity thieves cannot be as uh, successful as they otherwise would be. Um, I've tried to make an effort to get so uh, uh, credit bureaus not to use the social security number as a match when they get an inquiry from uh, a retailer, for instance. Uh, we pretty well established that by law in Rhode Island now, and uh, I think it's working. I think oh. we are seeing a reduction in credit card theft. Uh, unfortunate part is that it's not statistically significant in the state our size. Yeah. But anyway, I just think that's the way we ought to go is to get the credit bureaus not to use it um, as, a, as a match. Uh, maybe I should explain how that works. When somebody applies for credit and gives a Social Security number, the retailer will ask the credit bureau for a credit report and provide the Social Security number that was put on the form. Well, if somebody else is using your Social Security number, then the inquiry is going to go to the credit bureau, and they're going to match it. Uh, the, the number provided by the imposter, which is your number, they're going to match that against the credit bureau's records, which will show your social security number and your credit report. And they're going to report back that this person has a positive credit report because they're reporting back not the imposter's but yours. And that means that the individual can then charge all sorts of items and services on your accounts. And and you may not know about it for a while, uh, especially if the account was not active with you. But uh, that's one reason to check all your bills that come in, especially your credit card bills. And if you see anything unusual on it, report it right away because that may mean that an imposter has taken over that account and is charging stuff in your name. Right, and then they could open up new accounts in your name too. That's that's yes. that's even worse because you won't know about it until it goes to collections. <laughs> and, exactly. And then and then you've got a, a a whole bunch of stuff to take care of. You know, when you were talking about the credit bureaus, one of the things that I think is also very aggravating is that the credit bureau will mix up numbers if if there's like one number difference between your social security number and mine they often will pull up both of those for the uh for the retailer and and they'll give the whole credit report for both which is amazing to me because they figure what it's close yeah Yeah, they do that and then sometimes someone will have one number different and they'll issue credit to that person let's say they didn't get the whole number when they fished you or something and they'll still issue credit because i've seen some of these backhanded uh, (laughs) the the hidden uh, credit reports in some of these lawsuits and i'm astounded by that that it, it doesn't even have to be an exact match that. No, and even if the birth date or the address doesn't match, right. they'll still issue the credit report. It's it, irresponsible. But unfortunately, this business has never really cared about accuracy or about fairness to com- consumers. I don't know if the huge lawsuit at Equifax will change that or not. Maybe it will. Well, you know, yeah. I have to ask you because I, I know you have a new book out about uh, your run-ins with famous people. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks for uh, asking. It's called Faces uh, I Have Known. It's an electronic book, an e-book. It's available on Kindle, but also available from us directly so that you can download it onto your computer if you don't mind reading on a screen. But a lot of people, including my own grandchildren, have asked about some of the famous people I've encountered over the years. I've been a journalist now for more than 40 years, and uh, 
I, I've just uh, uh, interviewed and confronted people like uh, Jimmy Hoffa and uh, wow. a couple of presidents, Robert Kennedy, Gloria Steinem, even Fidel Castro at one time. Hmm. Um, I, it, uh, in doing this book, I discovered I have encountered uh, six presidents, uh, not necessarily uh, to have long interviews with, but at least to have encounters with. Mm. Um, and uh, it's been interesting to put it together. They could pretty good anecdotes that I think also tell a story uh, of my development as a journalist and some of the national trends uh, in my time <laughs> from the 1950s to the present. Mm. I did have an association with Martin Luther King when I worked in the civil rights movement in the South mm. and with uh, with Rosa Parks as well. So there's no lack of very, very famous people that I have encountered as a journalist. It's one of the things that newspaper people get to do. Yeah, that's so, the uh, fun part about I've, it, huh? The real fun part about it. <laughs> yeah, so I think people will find it interesting. Uh, inside glimpses into some of these famous people. Yeah, so who who impressed you the most of some of these famous well, people? Well, I think Gloria Steinem uh, <laughs> the most. I probably knew her the most of all of them, too. I had a friend who dated her and we double dated a lot and oh. <laughs> uh, I just uh, and we're both journalists and we're both journalists who are interested in a, in a cause and trying to get across to people social change I guess so we had that in common and uh, I found her quite different in private than in public in that she's very casual and she's got a very good sense of humor she'll keep you laughing and uh, she doesn't take herself too seriously which uh, I'm sure most men have would think uh, is not the case, but she doesn't. She doesn't consider herself as either a crusader or a radical, uh, and so that was really uh, refreshing about her. I, you mentioned that I'm an actor. I just read that there's to be a play on her life open in New York next year, and you can bet I'd put in a, a bid to try to get into that play. I would really like that. So that's something to watch for. There's going to be a play on her life. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to privacy for just a couple minutes. We have a few more minutes left. And, you know, I know that you've been writing about all sorts of aspects of privacy. And one of the things that kind of worries me is this whole thing with DNA, like people send in their DNA. My son wanted me to do it where I would, he wanted to do it. And I said, if you send in your DNA to find out our, our, you know, our background, you're going to really be exposing my DNA. And I really don't want you to do that. And then, of course, you've seen that out in California. That's how they found this um, this murderer. So, absolutely, yeah. And um, so, I just wonder what your thoughts are on this with DNA. It's it's uh, a lot more intrusive than your social security number. Uh, it is. It is. And uh, I was shocked to find out that the uh, uh, these heritage services are so free with uh, giving out information. I I had no idea, first of all, that. Uh, your relatives have a close match for Social Security. That's how they found the uh, the murderer in Northern California. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, no warrant is required and no paperwork is required for police to get access to that. Um, and I, I think now these private services ought to allow their clientele to just say no, to say they don't want that, uh, they don't want their uh, files as part of uh, whatever grand... Um, Dragnet, the the law enforcement might want to have. I, I certainly represent. I, I, I recognize the benefits to to all of that for law enforcement, and I'm really happy that this worked out in this long, long, cold case. But I hope that there will be means for people who want confidentiality to have it, and most importantly, a paperwork trail. That's that's what's necessary when you have a search warrant or a court order. 
there is a paperwork trail you can go back to and make sure that uh, this access was not um, not abused and was used legitimately in a case where there was a, a necessity to track down um, somebody whose DNA was caught at the scene of the crime. Yeah, this that particular matched. this particular. Uh, organization was not like Ancestry.com. They require a, a, a warrant. It was a smaller one that just like you got to go in. And if you signed up and you paid, you could go in there and search. And so law enforcement didn't need to have a, uh, a warrant because they were going in like a, an ordinary person could go in and search. So right. I, I don't like that at all. I mean, that kind of no. freaked me out. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. While so, we're on the topic, I, I, I want to alert people to a different use of genetic information, which is the use by employers uh, to find out if you're susceptible to certain illnesses or conditions. Mm. And we have laws now that prohibit uh, not only um, employers from doing that, but insurance companies from doing that, too. That's um, a, a little different from what we're talking about right. in the case of law enforcement. Law enforcement wants the DNA profile to identify an individual. Um, employers and uh, insurance companies and the like uh, want it to see if you're susceptible to certain illnesses. And I hope everybody can see the dangers of that and the value of having these laws that uh, uh, per, in, in large part prohibit that. Yes. And we are out of time, Bob. Do you believe how quick that went? <laughs> It's nice having conversations with you. The time does go by quickly. We cover a lot of ground, too. We did. Well, I want you to just give your website, and I have been enjoying for many, many years your privacy journal. I get it every month. So um, I just want to make sure everybody knows your website. They can go and see. Great. It's privacyjournal.net. The book about famous people is Faces I Have Known, and then we have a book called Compilation of State and Federal Privacy Laws that describes all the laws that protect people. So we'd be welcome to take questions from people or take their correspondence at privacyjournal.net. Yes. Thank you so much, Bob. And we will have you back again soon. You take care. Bye-bye. I enjoyed it. Thanks. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minerva and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. And visit our website at privacypiracy.org. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.